Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. I am Mark Calabria, Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute. I am also honored to serve as the moderator for today's panel. Regardless of who wins the presidential election, one thing is certain, that person will inherit a variety of challenges facing the U.S. economy and financial system. While we are seven years into recovery, even if admittedly a weak one, the understandable focus on short-term economic challenges has pushed aside much-needed action on long-term structural imbalances. Our objective today is to highlight these challenges, these imbalances, and discuss potential policy solutions. As the challenges are varied and many, the presentations and discussions will also be varied, covering substantial ground. It is certainly my belief that if many of these issues are not addressed, we will face slower economic growth with a considerable prospect of a stagnating or even declining standard of living. We all know from our Econ 101 that economic growth is ultimately driven by a combination of population and productivity growth. Recent trends in productivity and labor participation are, to say the least, troubling. I hope we will be able to address why those, some of those issues are driving that today. Structural issues are not limited to either the labor market or even the federal budget, but also remain as potential sources of volatility in our financial markets. Of course, we, as we were painfully reminded in 2008, our financial markets and overall economy are not separate, but interact, sometimes in destructive ways. To discuss these issues, we have a panel of three distinguished economists. Our first speaker would be Doug Holtzegan, president of the American Action Forum. I first got to know Doug when he was director of the Congressional Budget Office. I can say as a Senate staffer during that time, uh, his work was widely respected, even if his occasional cost estimates of legislation were not always greeted with cheers. It's ironic how sometimes Congress rarely appreciates being reminded of the cost of its actions. Uh, I first became aware of Doug, however, during his time at Syracuse University, where he eventually was appointed chair of the economics department. Uh, Doug has long been one of the most prolific scholars in the area of public finance. Uh, he also served as a member of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. Our second speaker will be Stefan Dallinger, who currently serves as the division chief for the Western Hemisphere Department of the International Monetary Fund, which covers the IMF's work in the United States. In that capacity, he oversaw the IMF's 2016 Article IV Consultation and Staff Report for the United States, released this past July, which you can find free and online at the IMF website. Uh, it's a great compendium of data and trends, as well as policy proposals on the United States. Uh, of course, we're only going to get a little taste of that today, so I greatly encourage you to, to take a look at it. I believe it's 80, 90-some pages, so quite, quite, quite comprehensive. Uh, previously, he led the IMF's Japan Division and was a researcher in the IMF's World Economic Studies Division responsible for the publication of the IMF World Economic Outlook. Our final speaker will be Cato's own Chris Edwards, the Director of Tax Policy Studies here at Cato and editor of DownsizingGovernment.org. Uh, to the extent that there is a life before Cato, we're not really sure about that. Chris was a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee, as well as a manager of PricewaterhouseCoopers and an economist with the Tax Foundation. Uh, let me also mention, uh, outside, we have a recent Cato publication, U.S. Fiscal Imbalances, uh, written by uh, Jeff Myron, who is our Director for Economic Studies. I greatly encourage you to take a look at that, which is also free online. So with that, uh, let's begin the discussion. I would turn the podium over to Doug. Well, thank you, Mark uh, and Cato, for the chance to be here today and uh, for a gracious reading of my, of my bio. Um, my mother has a far less gracious reading of it, actually. Um, you know, when I was at Syracuse 15 years ago, I, I was chairman of the department, I had an endowed chair, and um, uh, I had reached the pinnacle of professional accomplishment, in her view. She was a high school teacher, her father was a high school teacher, so th that was the best you could do in life. Since then, I've led a steady decline that included being a government bureaucrat at the CBO and a political hack on the McCain campaign. So now I run a think tank, and she's like, are you looking for a job? I said, no, I, I actually have a job off. She goes, no, I mean a real job, where you, where you make and sell something. So um, uh, thanks for letting the, the disguised unemployed address you today. Um, so uh, I have five to 10 minutes to discuss the, the, the challenges facing the US. And so that's impossible. Uh, but it's a target-rich environment. And let me talk with the, about the, the sort of key ones that I think have to come up. And then, and then uh, just stipulate there's a lot more that we could be worried about. Uh, the preeminent challenge facing the US, obviously, is poor economic growth not in the cyclical sense, although that's real, but in the long-term structural decline 
in the pace of economic growth in the United States. Uh, most um, places, including my old shop, CBO, place the long-term potential for U.S. growth at about 2% per year. To just give you a flavor for what that means, uh, between the end of World War II and 2007, the U.S. economy grew at an average rate of 3.2% per year, which meant that even with population growth, GDP per capita, a crude metric of the standard of living, could double on average every 35 years. And so in my view, that, that meant that in a single working career, each American had the opportunity to reach their version of the American dream, whatever it might be, send someone to college, get a house for the first time, whatever. If you take 2% in projected population growth, the standard of living doubles roughly every 75 years. And so the American dream is disappearing over the horizon. And this, I believe, to be our number one problem, something that we need to address. Uh, a related problem, uh, and, a, and a, uh, one that hits even uh, more quickly than I think people realize, is the federal budget outlook. Um, it, it, as a former CBO director, it is my moral obligation to be the voice of doom. So at this point, I'm just going to try to make you want to drink, but give me uh, a couple minutes on this topic. Um, if you think, for example, of the, the situation that will be facing whoever wins the presidential election, uh, they will walk into the Oval Office, and then some nerdy person like me is going to wander over from OMB and say, sir, madam, we have a problem. Uh, the problem is this. If we leave the federal budget on autopilot for the eight years of your two terms, we'll get to 2024 and have a trillion-dollar deficit. It'll be uh, roughly 4% of GDP. Uh, it will be rising. Uh, that deficit will have about 60% uh, of it accounted for by interest on previous borrowing, and interest will now be larger than uh, national security spending uh, as, a, as a program of the government. Uh, and all of this is going to be unsustainable. That will be your legacy. Uh, obviously, that's an untenable legacy. And uh, I don't believe that any president uh, can let that happen. And so they're going to now start looking into that and realize that the fundamental problem is not that revenues have somehow disappeared uh, from the, the budget radar screen, uh, or that somehow Congress has gone on an annual spending spree. They can't. There are caps on all those uh, categories. Instead, they're going to find out that the large entitlement spending programs, the Medicare's, Medicaid's, Affordable Care Act's, Social Securities of the world are ramping up rapidly. In a world with nominal growth that looks like 4%, you're going to have Social Security growing at over 6, Medicare growing at 5.9, Medicaid growing at 5.2. Whatever the actual numbers are, the basic message is demands for resources are going to outstrip the rate at which resources are growing, and these programs are going to drive red ink uh, in the federal budget. Now, obviously, those two problems are interrelated. If we grow more rapidly, just even a, a tenth of a percent more rapidly, over 10 years, CBO says that fixes the budget by about $300 billion. So if you went back you know, uh, you know, by a full percentage point somehow, uh, you'd have a $3 trillion swing in, in the red ink. That would be an enormous success. So better growth would help the budget outlook. It's also true that improving the budget outlook, I believe, will improve the growth prospects in the US. If you're an international investor thinking about locating or expanding in the US, you're looking at a country that's on an unsustainable trajectory. And you have to start doing some, some math, which says, OK, what are, the, what are the possible outcomes here? Well, one is that the US could do nothing. It could stay on autopilot. And that's a predictable calamity of, of a Greece-Portugal style. The only unknown uh, question is, is the timing. Financial crises are notorious for being difficult to figure out the timing. They're usually triggered by something unrelated. And, and that's the scary prospect that, that it could happen at a moment you just didn't expect. Second possibility is. You could try to fix the problem by taxing more heavily. Imagine a trillion dollar tax increase in a 2% economy. Uh, you don't have to be a raving supply sider, which I probably am, to, to imagine that uh, that's going to have really bad growth consequences uh, for the US. Or you could imagine getting the programs under control and, and getting uh, them to be sustainable over the long term and have the budget uh, not explode. And that would require structural reforms uh, to the entitlement spending programs. That should be the top priority for the next president. And uh, it would have a, a bunch of salutary effects, the primary one being taking off the table a threatening uh, debt crisis, all good. It's also true that they would allow more room in the budget for the annual discretionary spending programs, the things that are national security, basic research, infrastructure, education, the things that our founders thought were the role of the government. Those are being steadily squeezed out of the operations of the government by these large transfer programs that run on autopilot every year. 
the, the other beneficial effect that you'd, you'd get out of something like that is you would change the way you think about economic policymaking. In my lifetime, I have seen the economics profession, and I have seen the, the political establishment learn a lesson in the 60s and 70s, which is that you cannot run uh, the US economy from Washington in a command and control fashion with, with temporary targeted discretionary policies to shave off business cycle peaks and shave off business cycle troughs and somehow target inflation and unemployment to get some beneficial combination of low inflation and, and a, a good unemployment rate. We tried all that in the 60s and 70s. It was a miserable failure. Ended up with sustained high unemployment, sustained high inflation. We swore it off and for a couple of decades stuck to the fact that fiscal policy should be set for long-run growth purposes. And if there was going to be any short-term um, management of the economy, it was the Federal Reserve's job. We somehow unlearned that lesson on my watch at the White House in 2001, again in 2002, 2003, 2005, 2007, checks in 2008, and the, the, the Recovery Act in 2009, none of which succeeded at all in managing uh, a business cycle. And so I think it's time to relearn the lesson and set these, uh, these policy instruments for long-term growth so that we can actually get better performance. The last thing we would do, and this is the part that gets overlooked too much when the green eye shades people like me talk about it, is we can actually deliver a social safety net that America would be proud of. Our social security program is a disgrace. It is kept solvent on the books because we're promising, honest, really, to cut benefits for people in retirement by 25% across the board in a couple of decades. That's, that's no, no private sector entity could get away with that. That's terrible. Let's get, one, let's get a program we might want to be proud of. Medicare is the same thing. We spend enormous amounts of money. The gap between payroll taxes and premiums going in, spending going out is $300 billion a year. We're getting 10,000 new beneficiaries every day. So it's an enormous uh, financial uh, sinkhole. And we don't get high quality outcomes. And we ought to be able to do better with that kind of money and the kinds of medical technologies in the United States. Medicaid may be the most disgraceful, the largest public health program in the United States where getting a, a, an insurance policy doesn't guarantee you access to providers, means you're probably going to end up in the emergency room for ordinary care at higher rates than the uninsured. And so it should be the goal to do these reforms. They're desirable from a growth perspective. They're necessary from a budgetary perspective. But they ought to be something that we uh, aim for as, as, a, as a country, because these are not programs worthy of the United States. Uh, I'll close with the laundry list of the rest of the things I'm worried about. Tax reform, for sure. And I can come back and give you a sermon on that. I'm a former editor of the National Tax Journal, hot read, definitely want to subscribe. Solves all sleep problems. Um, and then uh, I'd stipulate we should really think hard about regulatory reform. One of the fun things about running a think tank is you get to have an intern program. Interns are great fun. At uh, AAF, we make them read the Federal Register every day. And um, some die, you get new interns. And um, we add up the self-reported cost to complying with, with federal rulemaking. And in the, since the, the January when Barack Obama took uh, the presidency, uh, this administration has passed a costly rule, finalized a costly rule at a rate of 1.1 per day every day. The cumulative self-reported, this is what the administration thinks, self-reported burden of those regulations on the private sector is $800 billion. So that's about a $100 billion tax increase through the regulatory uh, state every year. And I would just stipulate that if everyone knew that there was a $100 billion tax increase every year, I think a lot of people would be saying, geez, is that really a good idea? We're just not doing that well. And so I think getting that under control is a, is a preeminent challenge for um, uh, the next uh, president. Uh, the last in my laundry list is to get serious about immigration reform in the United States and finally try to get uh, a K-12 education system that, that we can be proud of. Um, if we were to do that, if we were to do entitlement reform, tax reform, regulatory reform, immigration, and education reform, I could retire happy, and the United States would have no problems in the 21st century. Uh, all of our difficulties are self-inflicted wounds that can be fixed. Thanks for the chance to be here today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Doug. And that was Oh, fantastic. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Stefan Daninger. I'm uh, from the IMF. Uh, you probably wonder what the International Monetary Fund uh, has to say about the U.S. Well, we issue every year uh, a report, and that uh, we do not only do for the U.S., but uh, for all our member countries. 
And uh, in particular, last year's report, in addition to talking about uh, outlook, economic uh, policies, we also took a, a little bit more effort to look into the sort of the medium term, the longer term challenges. So I'm very happy that uh, uh, I was invited to present a few of our views. Uh, let me just uh, jump right uh, into uh, that particular part of our work. And uh, we wanted uh, la uh, this year to uh, paint a little bit of a broader picture on uh, the outlook uh, going beyond potential growth and uh, looking sort of like uh, on the whole gambit of issues that uh, affect uh, living standards in the US. And uh, by surprise, we found four terms that all start with P and uh, hence uh, very easy to remember as where we see our that di diagnosis of uh, what, is, uh, what are the shortcomings that uh, any future administration should tackle. So uh, P1 is productivity, and that comes back down to the question about where potential growth is, because one of the big elements of potential growth is uh, the rate of uh, productivity. TFP is the technical term. It's total factor productivity. And um, uh, uh, there's a question about whether the US economy has become less dynamic. And I'll show you in a few seconds uh, what I mean by that. Uh, the second P is participation, and it refers to labor force participation. That's the amount of people that the US brings to bear to, uh, uh, for productive purposes. Uh, uh, in the US, we have, like in any other country, uh, an uh, aging development. Uh, but beyond that, uh, there has been signs that the participation rate, that's the number of employed and unemployed people out of those in the working age, has declined. And that's another challenge uh, to address. The third one is polarization. And by polarization, we mean in the income uh, sense. Uh, we'll show you uh, shortly some analysis that actually my colleague over here uh, did uh, during the last year to uh, document uh, over a long time horizon uh, by how much sort of the middle class has shrunk and what the implications are economically. And poverty is another P that we felt needed to be raised. And uh, the reason being that the levels of poverty have reached or are at a level that's uh, substantially uh, high to have a significant macroeconomic impact in the sense of um, disallowing people to be able to supply labor, not participating, but also forming the skills for the next generation. Uh, if you're in poverty, you usually have not the resources to do so. So these are the four Ps. Uh, I'll, uh, in the shortened introduction, we can talk about all of them. I'll focus on two. The one uh, is the productivity, and the other one is the polarization one, and then uh, I mentioned a few of the uh, thoughts that we had in terms of policies uh, to address uh, these longer-term issues. So a lot of talking, less pictures, so now more pictures and less talking. <laughs> All right. Uh, productivity growth has declined on a broad basis. Uh, so that measure uh, total factor productivity is the one I wanted to uh, just highlight. Uh, that's an estimate on the left-hand chart. Uh, that's the annual, uh, annual uh, uh, contribution rate from, of productivity to what we call potential growth. You've seen, you see that it was quite high in the pre-global financial crisis um, uh, period. Now we're around uh, 0.3. Uh, point two, these are estimates that um, have uh, a high degree of variability, uh, but uh, the difference between those periods uh, pre and the 2000s and now is, is uh, uh, significant. Uh, this is a trend that's uh, not only available in the US, we'll see it also in other uh, large uh, it, uh, developed economies, so there's potentially some common component to it. Now, I would like to link this to uh, one specific uh, strand of the literature that tries to explain the decline. There is no consensus in the literature of, acad uh, of academics what is behind really that decline and how permanent it is. But we know that uh, something has happened to the US economy for quite some time. If you look at the scale, 1985 to 2013, uh, these are business entry rates that you see, probably uh, all of you are familiar. Uh, what I wanted to point out, though, is that uh, these are not the declining business entry rates 
on average. So you would think, oh, maybe it's uh, just one sector that dominates, other sectors are improving. They're pretty much across the board of sectors. So I just uh, um, combined retail and IT. If you were thinking that it was uh, maybe the decline in the, uh, the slowdown after the tech bubble burst, it's not. You'll find it also in manufacturing and the wholesale. So if you have less uh, entry, uh, there's a, uh, a good chance that your capacity to innovate and improve has declined, and that is an issue. Uh, what has happened on the counter side is if you look at the red line, well, if you have less entry, you have less replacement. So you have sort of like the bigger firms taking a bigger pie. And you see that uh, in the red line, the mature firms now um, uh, have uh, about uh, close to 90% of the employed uh, people and used to be uh, around 80 in, in the middle of 80. So there's been sort of like a bit of a concentration going on. Um, not quite clear is it the regulation, not quite clear is it technology, but something seems to be happening here. Uh, the item that I wanted to uh, alert you, though, is the one on the right-hand side. And uh, this is uh, uh, known among uh, the economists as the decline in labor fluidity or labor market dynamism. Uh, what you see there is uh, people change jobs less frequently. It doesn't sound like it's a big deal, but I think it is a big deal. Uh, you have from 2000 uh, data to 2014. Uh, this is our data, but it uh, is a trend that goes in on since 2000. And what it means is, uh, in the past, people would, in, the, in 10 years of their life, would change jobs three to four times. And they would reallocate to new opportunities, to new, uh, uh, more productive or more um, uh, efficient use of their skills. Now they do it two or three times. Now you wonder maybe that is uh, because now we match jobs better. Uh, there's some studies um, that show that is an unlikely reason. Maybe you think it's because people are more worried. Uh, but if you control even for the local unemployment rate, there's a decline that goes through all age classes, all gender classes, all um, uh, uh, experience classes, so even all the workers are churning less. Now, we think that is related to the slowdown in productivity, and hence uh, understanding what's going on there is something that any new administration should uh, put a focus on and come up with some um, uh, answers to it. Uh, I'll, I'll go when we talk about policies or later in the discussion, I can go a little bit more in what we think that should be the case. Um, and this is the second component out of the four Ps I wanted to briefly touch upon, and that's the uh, polarization argument. The, uh, the point is what uh, the, the point we're trying to uh, show here is what happened actually to the middle class. And what you see on the left-hand side is uh, uh, percentages in the, in the total number of households in the US. So the number uh, 60 uh, next to the blue line tells you that 60% of all households in the uh, US by income have been in the middle pocket. And the middle pocket is defined what the median income is. It's uh, around 45 thousand uh, on uh, currently, but it was less than. And then you take out of that number, 50% more, 50% more, and look at how many people are in that group. And that group used to be 60%, and it has steadily declined to less than 50%. Um, where has it gone? Uh, up to the 2000s, there was actually a drift up, meaning that people in the middle class moved into the upper group since 2000. Uh, is uh, evidence or clear evidence that uh, the drift has been to the downside. Now, why is that important? Well, you can actually extrapolate from that. What's the impact on economic activity and economic demand? And um, you come up with quite sizable numbers on the effects of private consumption because low-income people have less income, or even though they spend more out of their income, but they consume less on average. So this is uh, another sort of like headwind that uh, the US economy has to uh, work against. OK, so this is sort of like our diagnostics. And I'm taking a lot of time. So I'm going to quickly uh, go through some of the reforms that we think are relevant. I think in terms of the biggest bang for the buck of what can be done is infrastructure repair. And that goes back to the component of productivity that's likely influenced by the absence of 
uh, a functioning or well-functioning uh, infrastructure. Um, I think that's, uh, in our view, uh, one of the uh, biggest um, uh, items, if you uh, were to set a priority. Trade integration is uh, another supply-side reform. Here I wanted to just uh, point out uh, an interesting factoid. Uh, if you look at the lower chart on the right, you see the big bar, which is uh, uh, U.S. underneath. That's the share of uh, the U.S. In, not, sorry, that's the billions of dollars of the U.S. that it exports in services. So the U.S. is actually the global leader in services exports. Many of the modern uh, or recent uh, trade uh, deals that are being negotiated actually try to uh, create a level playing field for that uh, uh, type of sector because many of the countries, for example, in the uh, um, TPP have already very low tariffs between them. So uh, one of the arguments why actually it is of benefit uh, integration for the U.S. is that it is already um, uh, uh, a risk of losing that role in uh, uh, leading private uh, sector experts. We also uh, support the corporate income uh, tax reform. Um, we uh, think that uh, 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 reforms to supply, uh, to uh, aid the supply of labor and skills are relevant. Again, I think this is relevant uh, for the explaining, or one explanation why you have less dynamism in the labor market is that the skills that you have are not as easily transferable as you had them before. You also have, if you uh, are in poverty, you don't even get minimum skills often, and that makes it also difficult to turn over. Uh, finally, uh, the last point to make is uh, all this has to be done within um, a smaller deficit envelope. And uh, we think there's a, a two-sided uh, answer to that. There is a need for a tax reform. Uh, corporate income tax is one component, but we've been supporting for some time now also shift to uh, more direct, uh, indirect taxes, carbon tax, a federal level VAT. We think are more efficient ways for taxation. Uh, pension reform and health uh, healthcare reforms are the two um, items that um, are of um, importance. Uh, here's some work, and uh, afterwards we can surely make that uh, uh, presentation available. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mark. Uh, I've got a bit of a, a more pessimistic view, I think, than even uh, the last two uh, panelists. Uh, the, the next president is certainly going to face an ugly fiscal situation, as uh, Doug discussed. Um, deficits are rising back up to a trillion dollars. Uh, both uh, Clinton and Trump don't seem to be the slightest bit interested in restraining spending. And the next president will probably have a recession on his or her hands, perhaps a deep recession, uh, which will cause deficits to, uh, to soar once again. So I think we have a fiscal disaster ahead, uh, and I think both Clinton and Trump uh, are oblivious to it. Today's debt situation is unprecedented in our history. Uh, we have the highest federal uh, peacetime debt ever. Uh, some people might take comfort in the fact that while our debt is 77% of GDP today, it was actually higher once in our history. In World War II, it hit 106% uh, of GDP. Now, what happened after World War II is that that debt plunged from 106% down to 50% of GDP within a decade. But it wasn't because Congress was frugal and balanced the budget. Not at all. What happened was is that the government ran uh, substantial inflation over that first decade, uh, and the, the average maturity of federal debt was long. So essentially, the federal government screwed creditors, uh, and that's why we were able to cut debt so much at the time. So my point is that was a one-off event that probably won't be repeated, and that's why our debt today is so scary, because it's headed up permanently, and this time around, there is no quick fix. The debt disaster we face today stems from the changing fiscal culture uh, in Washington. For the nation's first 130 years, right up to uh, 1930, the federal government balanced its budget 68% of the years. Since then, we've only balanced the budget 15% uh, of the years. Uh, so what changed? Well, in the New Deal, uh, we had the invention of entitlements and the rise of Keynesianism, and that helped kill off the anti-debt culture that had served the nation well. Uh, today, we have economists like Paul Krugman and others uh, writing articles saying, essentially, don't worry about government debt. Uh, we owe it to ourselves. 
Uh, that uh, view about debt, I believe, is uh, nonsense. Uh, one of the handouts today uh, on federal debt and the implications uh, is, uh, is on the table outside. Uh, so here's uh, where I'm going to mix it up a little bit uh, on the panel. Uh, with due respect, I think the IMF report uh, gives a troubling two-sided message on federal debt. Uh, on the one hand, uh, they, they seem to support uh, substantial deficits now to uh, supposedly stimulate the economy, uh, but they say uh, Congress should reduce deficits uh, down the road in the medium term. But you can't tell politicians to be, uh, that they can be spendthrift now, but they've got to be frugal tomorrow, because tomorrow never comes. It seems to me we have high deficits now, the economy is growing now, we ought to be cutting spending uh, right now. So there is disagreement about um, you know, the effects of federal spending on macroeconomics, and most of the discussion these days is about macroeconomics. But I want to talk a little bit about microeconomics and the microeconomics of spending. So whatever the effect of today's big deficits and $4 trillion of spending, all that spending is spending on particular programs, and many of those are harmful. The federal government runs 2,300 subsidy or benefit programs today, uh, from Social Security, the biggest, uh, on down. All of those programs create economic distortions. Social Security discourages personal savings. Welfare programs discourage work. Farm subsidies distort agriculture markets. Housing subsidies distort housing markets. Uh, the more federal spending that you have, the more distortions you create in the economy. So compare spending policy to tax policy. Uh, with taxes, there is a national debate about the microeconomics of the policy. High marginal tax rates create negative behavioral effects on productive activities such as working and saving. Now switch over to spending. Uh, spending and benefit programs also have negative behavioral effects on working and savings. The damage of high marginal tax rates is very similar to the damage of all those federal subsidy programs. Yet so much commentary today uh, makes it sound like high spending is good, but high taxes are bad. And I'm saying no, I'm saying high spending and taxes are bad for the same reason. They both distort price mechanisms in markets and they both undermine productive incentives. Now, the IMF report discusses troubling trends in the economy, and generally it's an excellent uh, report with uh, lots of great information. So the IMF goes through how, uh, and Stefan went through some of this, uh, that you know, the United States has sluggish growth, uh, low participation rates, low productivity growth, uh, falling numbers of business startups, uh, low private sector capital investment. All of those problems, it seems to me, are consistent with the view that the federal government is creating microeconomic distortions that are creating a lot of damage. The subsidies, the high tax rates, and as Doug discussed, the 3,000 or so new final regulations that are imposed every year on the economy. To me, that is the explanation for low productivity and low growth. So, you know, my bottom line here is that we should be focusing more on Washington on the microeconomics uh, of all that federal government spending, not just uh, the potential macroeconomic effects. I'm going to close with a, th a few thoughts about infrastructure, since uh, infrastructure is very much in the news. Uh, both uh, uh, Clinton and Trump uh, promised big infrastructure spending increases. Uh, there's been lots of news stories, as uh, I'm sure uh, you folks are all uh, aware, that you know, U.S. infrastructure is falling apart. Uh, um, the IMF report says that America's infrastructure is deteriorating. Uh, Larry Summers last week uh, was quoted saying that our bridges are on the verge of collapsing. Uh, that view, uh, I think, generally is not correct. Uh, the Department of Transportation has data on the quality of our bridges and highways, and generally the quality has been improving for uh, over 25 years now. To put one data point on this, uh, the share of the nation's highway bridges that are structurally deficient has actually plunged from 22% back in the early 90s to just 10% today. And here's uh, something that I think is, is almost always uh, uh, lost in these discussions about infrastructure. Nearly all government infrastructure in the United States is owned by state and local governments. The interstate highway system is owned by state governments. So why, why do people think that the federal government knows better what the optimal level of spending on infrastructure is in each of those the 50 states than the state governments uh, themselves? I don't think they do. 
uh, in the last five years, uh, to put another data point on this, in the last five years, about half the states have raised their gas taxes uh, to fund their own highway programs. Uh, so the states have all the tools available to them to solve their own infrastructure problems, and, and indeed they are doing that. So I don't think we need a big federal intervention as both Clinton uh, and Trump propose. There's an interesting article uh, last week by George Will. He did an op-ed uh, on, a, on a potential expansion in the Charleston, South Carolina seaport. Uh, that seaport, uh, it needs an expansion, like a lot of U.S. seaports do, to take uh, into account or to accommodate the bigger ships that are going through the new Panama Canal. So Will's point was he was lambasting Congress for not getting its act together and funding this uh, seaport expansion uh, in Charleston. But his op-ed illustrated why the federal government shouldn't get involved in local infrastructure. Apparently, the Charleston project is being delayed because they haven't got the federal cash. Uh, but, you know, Charleston could fund that seaport itself and do so more efficiently and more quickly. We don't need the federal uh, intervention. Uh, three decades ago, uh, Margaret Thatcher privatized most British seaports, and today British seaports are some of the most um, efficient in the world. So we don't need a big federal government involvement in our seaports and, and much other uh, of our infrastructure. A last item on this, and I'll, I'll close up, is that if you look at um, national income accounts data, uh, private infrastructure spending in the United States uh, is about five times larger than all federal, state, local, non-defense infrastructure spending. So if you add up the total of all the, the, uh, the spending on pipelines and uh, cell phone towers and factories and freight rail, all of that, it's five times bigger uh, than all the government spending on highways and schools and the like. So the message I get out of that is if we want more infrastructure spending in the United States, we ought to do more to uh, reduce these microeconomic uh, distortions and hurdles that the federal government is creating through uh, tax reform and uh, regulations. Thank you very much. Well, while we'll get ready for audience questions, I want to start with one of my own, uh, which is it certainly seems to me a common thread through all of the presentations was the importance of productivity to economic growth. And again, all of you touched on this, some a little bit more detail than others. Um, so let me ask a two-part question of, do you think the recent trends in productivity growth, and I guess I should caveat this with, of course, uh, we don't actually witness productivity growth. It's a residual. We, we guesstimate it is a fair way of saying. Um, first question, are the recent trends real? Second question, are they likely to continue? Third question, part of that question, what can we do in the near term to reverse that? And I'll start with Doug. So um, first thing is, this is the, the only time I ever get to say Paul Krugman got it right. He has the best quote ever on productivity growth, which is productivity growth isn't everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything. And that's true. That is the, the source of uh, increases in the standard of living. Um, I think the real, the recent trends are real. Um, you, you know, quarter to quarter, year to year, it's all too noisy to, to believe, but we've seen a, a pronounced downshift over what is nearly a decade now uh, I don't think you'd dismiss that casually. Um, second thing is diagnosing it. There are really two classes of diagnoses. Uh, class number one is uh, largely attributed to Robert Gordon out at Northwestern, who's just decided we have no more ideas, and so we'll innovate no more, and there'll be no productivity growth. I think that's wrong. Uh, the other class of ideas are that the <clears throat> mechanisms by which you infuse productivity growth into the economy are, are broken. That's um, capital deepening. So we haven't had really good capital uh, investment in this recovery, and that's typically how you get new technologies and, and productivity into the economy. Entry and exit of new firms, new business models. Stefan's graphs, I think, are the most important single graphs that you could walk around with. When you go to cocktail parties, carry those graphs. That's everything. <laughs> that's the, that declining dynamism is the problem, and, and that's the reflection of the productivity problem. Uh, and, and given that that these are all mechanisms that we believe public policy can influence. While we may not know the truth, and I don't think we do, I believe we should err on the side of making sure we're not getting in the way of economic dynamism. Uh, one of the reasons you want to dial back the regulatory straight is not because I hate regulation. Uh, I understand the, 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 the social uh, attempts to, to get generate benefits, but the reality is large incumbent firms game the regulatory state to exclude competition. 
and we're seeing an absence of competition. Uh, high taxes impede in, uh, entrepreneurs entering. So everywhere where we've got a policy lever we can pull, we got to pull it on behalf of better investment, better saving, better entry and exit and competition, and that'll help uh, the productivity problem. Thank you. Uh, Stefan? No, I, I, I agree uh, with almost all the points. Uh, just factually, maybe one thing to add is that um, when you look over the last 10 years, the masking effect of uh, uh, the decline in productivity was that actually had a very strong increase in the energy sector. And we, we uh, forget that the shale revolution uh, was a massive, massive uh, um, boost in, in productivity for the U.S., and that has uh, now slowed a little bit because prices have come down. And I think we see now sort of like that the underlying um, uh, trends in the other parts uh, of the economy uh, are really not that strong. So I think that that's one uh, a point to make. And maybe um, I have to just um, uh, underscore, and I think it, it also goes uh, to your point, that it's not, 100%, it's not very clear what are these driving factors. We uh, look uh, uh, at various aspects, and uh, probably I would think our best understanding is there's a little bit of everything in there. We probably are not innovating as fast as we did in the past. There was a revolution, but that cannot be the IT revolution, but that cannot be everything. Um, uh, I think there's possibly something to uh, increase um, in regulation, but then when we look at uh, numbers, I think one of the uh, reports that uh, we found instructive is about occupational licensing uh, agreements, and, and these have uh, 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 professional licensing, these have indeed increased as a documented fact, but uh, Again, these are sort of like professional licenses. This is sort of like a rather small segment of the whole economy. Now we can't rule out that this is really a big, big, um, uh, has a big effect, but on the first uh, uh, look at it, it might not be sort of like that big of an uh, of an segment of the economy that you could uh, uh, argue that this is uh, driving the slowdown. So maybe there is something in, in, uh, in regulations, but in the data that are sort of quantified and looking at it that we've seen, it doesn't strike us as sort of like the, the, the pressing. Uh, Two quick points, uh, Mark. One is I point your attention to uh, Robert Barrow's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week. His basic argument was that, you know, the growth has been slow, uh, this expansion, the last uh, seven years. And looking historically, the economy was a deep recession. The economy, and his, his view is that the economy should have bounced back much stronger. We should have had uh, much stronger growth over the last few years. And he points a finger at uh, low productivity. Uh, I'd reiterate also what I think both Stefan and Doug pointed out. The thing about capital investment, which is why is so crucial when firms have worn out machines they go and buy new machines those new machines incorporate the latest technology they create demand for the machine making companies to make new and better machines so capital investment is about information and advanced technology and progress it's crucially important thank you chris uh, well, we're going to open up the audience questions i will remind you request that uh, you have your question in the form of a question uh, if you could also identify yourself and your affiliation, uh, be much appreciated. And please wait till the microphones get to you. So, uh, any questions? Uh, we have right here one in the front and the center. Uh, right here in the center. We'll go first here. Uh, thank you, Nick Farmer. Can you address total factor productivity on things like <clears throat> substitution? If I have a smartphone, my judgment, it substituted 15 or 16 different devices I no longer need. A second issue is uh, replacing a taxi with Uber. Uh, same trip, same number of labor hours involved, but half the cost to me. So from a standard living point of view and productivity, how do those two kinds of things compute? So, quality adjustment. So, so there are really, there really two pieces to this. So the, the first is... The, the piece which is production, you know, so the firm specific, I'm going to produce something and sell it, and does the invention of all of these apps and, and the, the technological advances somehow mislead us about the, the technologies and the productivity growth that's gone on? I'm not an expert in this, but, but I would say a reading of the literature is that people believe we mismeasure advance and productivity all the time and that there's no greater mismeasurement now that explains the slowdown. It's not just somehow that the smartphone and those apps is fundamentally different and we're getting it wrong. So 
that doesn't seem to explain what's going on, although it's a, a real measurement problem. The second is the benefits you receive. That's a very different question. Given the productivity and the fact that these things are out there, what's happening to welfare and satisfaction? It's enormous. Like the, the, there's a paper that suggests that the, the consumer benefits from Uber in only four cities are like $2 billion a year. It's, these are staggering numbers. So, yeah, life's better. Um, but, but that doesn't explain the productivity slowdown in the data. I don't know if you guys want to add to that. I mean, maybe one word on, um, I think you're referring also to the broader uh, issue of the gig economy, like you have an um, employment uh, arrangement is atypical or new. Um, I would think that is partially related to uh, the decline in, in fluidity. Uh, think of uh, uh, particularly services which uh, make you basically an entrepreneur. Uh, you uh, are self-employed uh, uh, in, in, let's say, in Uber uh, services. What you're missing in that arrangement is that there's no um, overarching corporate structure within which you usually, in the past, we would acquire some skills, some training. These, uh, these uh, benefits that you get from the typical or regular uh, employment arrangements are no longer there. We, I think it's too early to tell whether um, this has a, already an impact or what impact it has. I think we're at the stage of uh, understanding how large the group of people is uh, that are in these um, uh, arrangements. Uh, and they, they still quite vary from... Uh, up to uh, 5% to up to 15% of uh, younger uh, of the younger employed uh, uh, adults are uh, are in these arrangements so this is more something prospective than it may be uh, uh, current right i think we had a question here on the the aisle we'll come back to this one right now hi i'm swami ayer from keto uh, to the extent you said that, you know, government-created distortions, ultra-low interest rates surely are the biggest, uh, at a global level, the biggest form of uh, distortion that's going on. And the question is, to what extent has this resulted in a massive misallocation of capital that is resulting in the productivity slowdown? Because prime affairs say, if you have massive misallocation, you should have a productivity slowdown. Secondly, to the extent that we have the craziness in Europe of not only the government but the private sector being able to issue bonds at negative interest rates, the only reason people would ever buy such a bond is in the hope that interest rates become even more negative so that you can make a capital gain. I mean, that to me is the distortion, ultimate distortion and ultimate bubble. When that bursts in Europe, what do you think will be the implications for the United States? I don't know if you want to start us off, Doug, but I, I sure. take the question as the impact of negative interest sure. rates on uh, productivity growth. Well, I, I think more generally, you know, what has been the the sort of track record of the Fed and its um, uh, extraordinary monetary policies, which are now ordinary because we they never exited them. I, I think m my take on this is that in the crisis, the Fed was the best policy response we had. It really did the most to stem the downturn in 2008. Uh, but that everything since then flunks a benefit cost test. You know, QE2, Operation Twist, LSAP, whatever you want to call it, none of these things generated real growth. They also uh, fed uh, some destructive uh, reaches for yield and um, uh, misallocations that you mentioned. So think about Puerto Rico, which fell apart. It was predictably falling apart, and everyone was buying bonds at 8% because there was no other yield in the marketplace. So... It's just aided and abetted that kind of a phenomenon. It pushed money into the housing sector, which is never your way to productivity growth. Just say that. Um, and so I think there's a, a lot of truth to, to what you say. That this is this is a situation where we've got unemployment under five percent. Um, year over year core inflation is very close to, if not to, by your preferred measure, and monetary policy is nowhere near normal. I can't believe that's a good idea. And and when Europe falls apart. This, is, this has been the problem for, for years now, right? We, we give you the fiscal outlook and you say, we should blow up. And the U.S. never blows up. And why is that? Because we are the best-looking horse in the global glue factory. People take one look at Europe and say, hey, I'm going to stick my money in the U.S. And it just gives our guys more rope. I don't know if you either wanted to address the issue, add to it. 
Um, I, I would just sort of add uh, to it. Um, I think the, the, the question uh, about um, intermediation um, is, uh, and, and related to it to financial stability is, is quite a relevant one for the U.S. And um, I think one trend that we forget to uh, mention often is that the banking system is one natural source for intermediation. There has been quite a bit of uh, strengthening in capital buffers and uh, resilience, but uh, a lot of the inf uh, intermediation is now happening outside uh, the well-understood and better regulated component, which is the non-banking uh, sector. And uh, in there, I think we uh, had a study last year, which we called a financial sector assessment program. We felt there were a couple of uh, uh, pockets of uh, vulnerabilities uh, that uh, should be sort of like there should be more of a, uh, uh, of a focus on, including um, uh, the insurance sector is a sector where we think um, there is an uh, uh, need to better clarify uh, exposures and uh, the um, uh, risks that are potentially taken. We just have a data blind spot on it, and I think it is important to uh, uh, improve on, on that component. I think there's been some movement on the asset management side. Uh, there was a concern about uh, uh, redemption runs, for example, that has been uh, uh, now addressed with regulation. But I think uh, 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 from our side, we think sort of like more light needs to be uh, put on the non-banking sector in terms of sort of like a, a risk component. Can, can, I, can I add something to that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, gonna... so I just want to add one thing. In the spirit of Robert Barrow's correct observation that bad policy is a very important part of the, the, the bad recovery, the Dodd-Frank financial regulation reforms have, I think, without dispute, both sides of the aisle, unduly burdened the smaller and regional banks. Uh, it has stopped um, the creation of them. I think there have been only five, maybe seven new banks since it was passed, something very tiny. Um, a lot of a lot are selling out, a lot of consolidation. And if there's a place that's important in the economy for relationship banking of the type that they do, it's in new firm startups where you you can see the business model, you know the entrepreneur, and you make the, the judgmental loan at the very uh, lowest level to get that person going. That's missing in this recovery. And I think you can point that finger straight at the regulatory burden. Let me follow up on this question. I mean, obviously, I work on financial regulation, so I'm a little biased here in terms of interest. But when I look at some of Stefan's slides, like one of the things that really strikes me is up until about 2000, the labor share kind of looked cyclical. Mm -hmm. you know, it didn't really look like there was a trend other than up and down with the cycle. And it's really in 2000 where it's, if you want to say, start spiraling downward. And of course, as Stefan also mentioned, the inequality, most of the decline in the middle class seems to have been a move to the upper, the higher income up until about 2000. So uh, to put my economist hat on, there seems to be some sort of structural break around 2000 that continues and, and grows with the financial crisis. Um, is this an aspect, I mean, my own biases might be that uh, when we overinvest subsidies in property, we don't necessarily build productivity that way. And apparently, uh, we benefit people who have property and the income from that. Um, but I'd get the take on um, any of the panelists who'd like to comment on, is part of this what we've seen since 2000 related to distortions in our financial system, which you both touched on, but I want to give you a little bit of ability to take a little further if you want. Well, Stefan, you want to start with that? Well, I, that was pretty well I think broad. the uh, labor income share decline is one that's uh, not only uh, to the U, uh, uh, spe specific to the U.S. It is a global uh, phenomenon. Uh, it has piqued uh, our and everybody's interest in trying to understand it. Um, I, we have to say there are a couple of candidate uh, explanations, and none of them is... Uh, absolutely firmed up. There is a question where there's sort of like a global labor supply shock with uh, countries in, in, in uh, Asia, China, others coming on board and meaning producing uh, tradable uh, uh, items and compete through those items uh, with uh, workers around the world. So that, that could be one factor. Um, another factor is uh, changes in uh, labor uh, uh, 
legislation and uh, the representation. We know that unionization rates have declined. It could be related to uh, a bargaining issue. And then, of course, we have uh, structural factors. So um, I, I think at that point, because it is a common uh, phenomenon, uh, it is so like, uh, uh, difficult to just point at, uh, at uh, one specific story that uh, might apply to the U.S., but there may be also common components out there, which uh, so like some of them might be related to the economic internationalization. And, and certainly the global uh, yeah. labor shock from particularly China was coincident with China and other countries buying lots of dollar demand assets, European assets, yeah. and the global fall in interest rates, as well as labor market implications. I don't know if Doug, you want to add anything. No, no. I, I, you actually said the, the two things I'd point out. I mean, the, the one structural break is definitely China's entry into the WTO, where I would, I would say um, China plus Indy, India presented a greater influx and influence on uh, global wage structures than anyone anticipated. I think that's a really big deal. And simultaneously, the U.S., and not just the U.S., since it was actually a global phenomenon, decided to pour its scarce capital into residential homes. And you don't really help those uh, relatively low-skilled workers by building empty houses outside of Phoenix. And so we wasted a huge opportunity, and you've seen the result. Well, I was going to get a question, but you, you raised something I want to follow up on, which is China and India still have hundreds of thousands of people, arguably, in the rural areas that are yet in the urban areas that have yet... I mean, one could argue you still have a large amount of labor that can be brought into the global labor supply that still isn't there. Um, does that suggest recent trends are going to continue in that regard? I, I, don't, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I'm wrong a lot, so, you know, write this one down. But I think we're fighting the last war in trade policy. I do. I mean, I, I, I understand the anger about the... Uh, failure of, of workers to have the mobility to new jobs and, and better wages in, in the presence of the entry of China and India. But um, their wage structures are starting to look more and more like ours. If you look internally, it's not like they're completely out of step. Wages are rising in China. Uh, so you're not getting the same wage shock. And, and I, I think there are, no China, there, there are no China and Indias left. So you know we're just not going to see this phenomenon again, but that's what everyone's obsessed with. I, I should note that some of us here, particularly Cato, don't necessarily see this as a war. We think the lifting of hundreds of millions of people out of no, no, poverty is a good thing. I think but, the, uh, the war is I in the U.S., exactly. the policy war. I mean, I, I think what we, we did with China was exactly the right thing. So I, I, we had a, let's go to the second row on the aisle here, and I'll come right back to you, Barry. Uh, thank you for the discussion, John King. I'm a uh, retired uh, budget analyst from the Pentagon, and uh, I was concerned about spending on that side and help Simpson Bowles. But I have a qu question here. Uh, being an analyst, I look at the internal dynamics, and I look at macroeconomics these days and see that part of the problem is you don't recognize the problem because you're dealing with it in the terminology that currently exists. And some of the things I would look at is uh, what I call the concept of topping out. Even advanced economies cannot provide enough goods and services to employ all their people, which creates a lot of the labor discontent. So you top out at some point, you know, no matter how many iPhone toys you have. So when you come back to the policy side, what do you do about that? Which then brings me back to the side about uh, globalization, the word I haven't heard too much here, and what I call then, from the political perspective, which I thought is what part of your discussion was, because that's your topic, is do you favor the nation state flags or do you favor multinational globalization logos? And so if your discussion point is what does the next president do, don't you think they're going to come down on the side of flags, which then kind of determines you or leads you into the discussion of continuing globalization or trade war? So I guess one way I would phrase the question is, uh, while our panel is putting issues on, on the table, uh, is the next president likely to be engaging in greater trade wars or greater globalization? So I love Washington. And um, <laughs> it, it is the greatest parlor game in town to try to figure out what's, what's Donald Trump want to do, what's Hillary Clinton want to do, what does the Senate want to do, what do the House Republicans want to do, do you believe the task force is what they want, really want to do? But a better way to spend your time is trying to figure out what they have to do, because that's what will get done in the end. We have to grow better. And so for Mr. Trump, deporting 11 million people 
and creating a recession, incurring $300 billion in budget costs and destroying the social fabric is not in his interest. He's not going to do it. He can stand up at any podium all day. It's never going to happen. And in the same way, we're not going to have a trade war and we're not going to retreat from uh, trade to the, to the extent that either candidate is saying right now because we need to grow better, trade with, with all of the opportunities and markets outside and with the U.S. having to um, uh, engage in those markets uh, both for strategic and for um, uh, growth reasons is going to do it. You look at TPP, trade agreements are really simple. The U.S. does two things well. It grows things. We have phenomenal farmers, and we invent stuff. And so if a trade agreement opens up markets for our farmers and protects our innovations, it's in our interests. That's all TPP is, first, first thing on digital goods in any trade agreement. Is it perfect? No. So these guys are going to blather all they want. Um, but when they get in the Oval Office, they're going to have to do some things to make the, the U.S. a better place, or they won't get reelected. And so I, I, I just think... That's how you should frame the problem, and a lot of these things they're talking about they won't do. Um, I'll also just stipulate for the record, I disagree with your reading on the record. I don't think there's any evidence of topping out in any systematic way, and so I don't worry about that. Well, that's the optimistic take. Uh, anybody yeah, uh, pessimism? I've, uh, no, I'll give you a comment on globalization. I, I think there's been far too much focus on um, – a lot of globalization, most globalization, in my view, over the last 40 years has happened uh, regardless of what governments have done. The massive explosion in cross-border direct and portfolio investment flows swamps the amount of increase in global trade. Both are important. Both are positive. Whether or not we get TPP, I, I favor uh, trade deals like that. They're positive, but uh, you know the globalization is going to continue on because of the relentless pace of technology, because of the type of industry we have uh, today uh, in the world. Today's industries, semiconductors and the like, you can locate anywhere. We have uh, the containerization of shipping has vastly increased efficiency in shipping. So, you know, you wind back the clock uh, before the 1970s, uh, capital was bottled up, a lot of countries had fixed exchange rates, money didn't flow over borders, borders were opened up in the 70s, trillions of dollars started flowing over borders, industry changed, industry can be located anywhere, it's just a relentless uh, pace, I think, um, positive, um, there's lots of side effects we have to deal with, but it's going to go on no matter what Trump or Hillary or anyone else says, so... Well, I think we've got time for one more question, so we'll take this one up front. Yep. Okay, hello. Um, my name is Su Fei from the Guangzhou Jinan University. I'm meantime a writer for the many newspapers and the silk competitor for TV. So my question, first one, was about TPP. As you, you mentioned uh, that I just... Uh, worry about how about the TPP uh, during the timing of the Clinton and the Trumps because they both of them just say they don't they cannot accept the TPP uh, but um, many of the Asian countries already signed but uh, is uh, abused about TPP or just change the name because TPP is beneficial for the agriculture in the US but in another side not beneficial to the Wall Street um, maybe it's it beneficial for the Wall Street, they will change it, this TPP. Another is uh, about uh, banking system. Uh, 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 the last, uh, I think it's, uh, how about the last eight years because of uh, uh, after 2008 economic crisis, uh, the banking system just uh, part of a destroy and uh, controlled by the government. Uh, and the last eight years, uh, this bank will be more relaxed to supervise for the bank system. Thank you. So I think the first part of that is your thoughts on TPP, whether it's going to happen or not, and the second part of that question on whether yeah. government will maintain such a big footprint in the financial system. So um, I, I don't know if it'll happen or not. Um, I'd say that there are uh, there's the, the vast amount of uh, verbiage that's being exchanged at the presidential campaign level but there's essentially no talk of that type uh, in the congressional districts. I, don't, I haven't talked to a single member who goes home and hears about TPP. And if you look at the polling, the vast majority of Americans support trade agreements. They understand where the dollar's growth is going to be and how workers benefit from being engaged in those markets. That, that to me, gives me some hope. second thing to recognize is that for a long time, however smart economists may have thought 
we were. Um, most trade agreements came about in the post-war period as part of an effort to, you know, engage Western allies in uh, 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 engaging the Soviet Union. And the pursuit of that alliance and its strategic objectives was the key. I think there's a fair amount of that that's persuasive to members as well with China. You know, if you go back to to just, you know, 2000, you look at the TPP countries, only Vietnam got more exports from China than from the U.S. That's now been completely reversed. Uh, there are only four where the U.S. is the dominant exporter, and they're all on this side of the Pacific. And so th there's a lot about TPP that is about China, even though China's not a signatory. That makes me think that the odds are greater than, than the, the current thinking really is. And in terms of the government footprint in, in financial services, it's too big, it's going to remain too big, and it's a tale of woe that Mark and I can tell you another time. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Stefan, Chris, if you either one you want to comment on that? Uh, maybe I just say maybe on uh, trade agreements in general, I think what uh, uh, needs to be not forgotten and needs to be uh, a clear element of any uh, agreement is that um, uh, efforts uh, need to be integrated uh, to mitigate uh, adverse effects uh, of um, any uh, groups that uh, uh, might um, uh, be affected adversely. I think that's a component that uh, gets maybe not uh, said enough. I think the retraining, training programs, there's often work with uh, community colleges that need to take place. I think uh, with, uh, with uh, a right package, I feel sort of like that. That is uh, is is something that needs to be part of the right package of any trade agreement that um, uh, cements a role uh, that the U.S. always had that the free exchange of uh, goods and services being a being a hallmark of of the U.S. success. Thank you. I want to thank all of our panelists. I want to thank you as the audience. I also want to welcome everybody upstairs to the second floor to lunch. If you take the spiral staircase up to the George Yeager Conference Center, and I know our speakers will be hanging around for a little bit. Thank you. <laughs>